Hello, everybody. My name is Masumi Rostad, and I'm your host. This is Inner Voice, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes in the life of a touring string quartet. I'm the viola player of the Pacifica String Quartet. We meet a lot of very interesting people on the road, and I thought it would be cool to be able to take some of these conversations and share them with you. I had a chance to sit down with Tim Monroe, the flute player of 8th Blackbird. Here's how that conversation went. Thanks for listening. Why not? Okay. So I'm sitting here uh, with, what's your name? My name's Tim Munro. And what do you do? I'm the flutist with 8th Blackbird. What is 8th Blackbird? Well, it's a new music sextet. So we're a sextet of musicians that play almost entirely music by um, contemporary classical composers. And what are we doing here today? We're playing a concert together because your group, Pacifica, and my group, 8th Blackbird, are both in residence at the University of Chicago. The other day, we were sitting around before another Contempo concert. Contempo is, the, like you said, it's this new music group at University of Chicago in which we play uh, often many pieces by the, the, com- the student composers there. And we were sitting around chatting, and you had some music in front of you. Tell us what you were doing. <laughs> I was um, memorizing the music because I'm on Tuesday going to play a concert where I'm playing a couple of pieces from memory. And this is a concert for flute and percussion quartet. I find that incredible because, first of all, looking at the music, it was just a whole bunch of blackness. There were a lot of notes there. What what, what was the piece? The piece was um, Idol for the Misbegotten by George Crumb, which is a piece that's supposed to be played... On, uh, it's supposed to be heard from across the lake on a moonlit evening in August. I think I think is what he writes in the book. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean across the lake? Like, is this like a theoretical lake, or is this like? He says ideally it should be performed in this way, but of course it, I don't think it ever has been actually performed like that. But that's really great, and you could you could kind of do it in like a John Cage way and play it across like Michigan. <laughs> you could never possibly hear it, but <laughs> you could imagine it. Yeah, that's definitely true. Now the piece is sort of his attempt to sort of uh, say goodbye to the world. He thinks the, the you know the natural world is in disarray and is collapsing, and this piece is a very sort of overt political statement about you know the 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 misbegotten, I guess, are us, and it's it's like he's his elegy for a dying world. Okay, so why did you decide to memorize this piece? In a lot of ways, I'm a pretty lazy person. And as a flute player, I do as little work as possible to get an outcome that I like. I mean, I have pretty high standards, I I like to think, but I'm also a very fast learner. And that can be actually a disadvantage because it means I don't get to learn things perhaps as thoroughly as I'd otherwise like. When I joined 8th Blackbird five years ago, I discovered this amazing group that memorized a lot of stuff. And so I immediately was thrown in the deep end and had to learn just bajillions of notes in my first year. I lived like a monk. I don't think, I think all I did was learn notes. But what I learned really quickly was that by memorizing the music, it forced me to know the music better. It forced me to slow my process down. It basically made me go from being sort of in the iPod generation to like the pre-digital era. I had to slow everything down and learn things properly. I heard an interview with a famous literary critic whose name is totally escaping me right now. And he was saying that he never knows a poem until he's memorized it. And so he now has memorized 
just, uh, I mean, thousands and thousands of poems, you know, the complete works of many poets. And I don't know, it was inspiring to me because the thought that I now know this piece by George Crumb, like very intimately, and I, I, I can see all of it in front of me as this sort of beautiful kind of thing is, is, a, is kind of an inspiring thing for me. The other element is something that 8th Blackbird taught me, which is that by memorising things, we can make a more intense experience for our audience members. Like you can like stare into, the, into your audience's oh, eyes and like, make creepy freak, looks. Yeah. Freak them out. That's entirely what our job is. We try, no, but we do try to take weird music and make it engaging and fun and um, a little bit theatrical for our audiences. Sure, so sure. It enables us then to move around and do things like that. So actually that's really inspired me in performances like this, which I'm doing outside of 8th Blackbird. I'm doing it with a Chicago percussion group. So I can take those lessons of knowing, getting, getting to know the piece more intimately and finding a way to make a more intense experience on stage and then, um, you know, do it a lot. And so that's, I kind of now, I, I try to memorize a lot of what I do. Did you do Suzuki Method? No, I did Yamaha as a kid, but... What, what, is, what is Yamaha? I don't really know. They put me in front of a keyboard and there were colors and... It's, it's all these Japanese things. It's their, their motorcycle companies, you know? <laughs> Actually, right? Both of them, right? Yeah, well, I have, and I play, two-thirds of my instruments are Japanese. I've, um, I have a Muramatsu flute and a Miyazawa alto flute. It's awesome, taking over the world. Nice. So, did, so, so was the memorization thing new for you or did you... Did you do that growing up at all? I'd memorized things in the past, but it was only really as an undergraduate when I was forced to. And I hated the experience because it really, it felt like I was wasting my time because I was, as I said before, I was a far, I'm a, like a fast learner. And I didn't like the idea that I was doing this for no good, what at that time seemed like not very good reasons. What about you? Have you, I mean, do you memorize things regularly or? In the quartet, we never memorize anything, which isn't to say that, that we're not memorizing it, but we're never playing without music. Right. And I think it's because if you, if you were to look at a viola part, <laughs> yes, you can memorize it easily, but you might end up at one point off by a third or miscounting a rest by a little bit, you know? Well, we screw up all the time. The, one of the wonderful things about learning this whole world, being in... in um, finding an entry into this world through 8th Blackbird is this wonderful realisation that because we're playing new music, we can screw up occasionally and not everyone in the audience is going to freak out. I mean, if you get lost in a Beethoven string quartet and have to stop because you memorised it and, and like you, you took a little wrong turn, everyone's going to know. Yeah, especially your three colleagues in the quartet who are going to be smirking. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that I, I remember reading about some quartets 60, 70 years ago that played... Uh, from memory. Well, most recently, or most famously, I think, was the Quartetto Italiano, who, who played all of their repertoire early on, um, and I think through the bulk of their career without music. And I just, I can't imagine the hours that they put into into learning each piece, but then also how much it limited them in terms of repertoire. Right, right. I mean, that's the other side of the coin. We're very lucky in 8th Blackbird to be a full-time group. And... We're primarily a touring group, which means that we take the same program to a lot of different places. And that gives us more ability to concentrate on a small body of repertoire. 
And we don't return to the same locations more than once every four or five years, usually, which is unlike quartets. I mean, you guys do more concerts than we do, I think, perhaps in a year, and you do you go back to the same places many more times. Whereas for us, you know, we, we have this piece that we've been touring for the last three years by Stephen Hartke called Meanwhile, and we've played the piece like 80 times or 70 times. And it's really worth memorizing it if you're going to play the piece 70 or 80 sure, times. Yeah. But we, do, we have a smaller repertoire than you guys. But say you play this piece 70 times, is that 70 different venues? Yeah, that's 70 different venues. Wow, over the course of a year or? No, it's over the course of three years, really. Um, and we pair that with a lot of other repertoire which we play with music. You know, our, our goal is never to play everything from memory. I know that there's, there's a quartet, uh, Thomas Zehetmeyer's quartet does a lot of what they do from memory, but they just do projects, like a small number of projects, I think. Yeah, well, I think that they have like a, a very specific touring season or periods, and I, I think the difference with groups like ours is that we are always on the road. And, you know, Actually, tell me about your, your, your touring schedule, because for us, for example, we're on the road all year long. We'll take a month off in the summer and a couple of weeks in the winter. What about you guys? Yeah, we take five weeks off in the summertime, typically, and then about two to three weeks off in the winter. And we've tried to give ourselves little breaks in the spring and fall, but um, this year that was almost impossible. We've been on the road uh, 190 days this season. And that includes, you know, we, we'll go to somewhere for four or five days or a week. And actually, there have been quite a lot of those this year. We played, I think, around 50 concerts this year, 45 to 50 concerts, maybe a little more. So we don't do, um, we, we tend to do, go somewhere and then work at a university for a few days, whereas you guys tend to get in and get out or get in and move on. Yeah, I think, yeah, now, now more and more we just go in for the concert and packing it in day by day um, many, from concert to concert. Concerts? How many concerts have you got this year? I think the past couple of years we've averaged around 85, 90. And of those, I mean, how many are unique programs? How many programs in a year would you play? How many different programs? Um, too many. <laughs> Do you think it's too many? Is it too many for the demands of the presenters that it's too many? It's us who have to rehearse these pieces and, and keep them fresh. But I think that the difficulty is that some presenters may have had this Beethoven quartet or this Schubert quartet, and you cannot play the same piece you know, year after year, uh, even if it's different quartets on the same series. So you know, audiences like having a little bit more variety than that. And I think you, you probably don't run up against that as much as... As us, like they're not going to say, well, that you know, that hard key piece. Well, we've already heard that. <laughs> Actually, we have encountered a lot of presenters who request specific pieces, and we do have to actually switch around programs. So, for instance, we have typically one central acoustic touring program, we call it, each season. Um, I think we have concerts, I don't know how many, maybe 15 this year, of what are acoustic touring programs. But our official acoustic touring program was only performed at two of those instances. The other 13 were different versions of it. So we, we, we swap in three or four different pieces. So, so what does that mean, like your acoustic program? Like, are, are, you, are you plugging everything else? <laughs> I don't know. I think we, we started calling it acoustic touring program because um, we've been touring the Steve Reich piece, Double Sextet, and that's a piece we play with the pre-recorded version of us and so we actually have to play that wired we have to play that amplified and so then we amplify that whole show well, well, anytime we do that, 
So, so do you do like a Milli Vanilli thing and kind of lip sync? <laughs> that would be kind of awesome. It's a frustrating piece. It's a really frustrating piece to play with tape because the, the acoustic, prop, the it's never exactly the way that you want it and it never sounds as good on stage as it does in the auditorium. This is always the problem with um, amplified shows. You have no idea how it sounds in the auditorium. You're putting your complete trust in your audio engineer. Do, do you travel with an engineer? We do now, yeah. We, for the last, I think, two or three years, we've been working with a guy, Ryan Ingebrigtsen, who works in Chicago um, most of the time for the for the city council, uh, for the city government. And um, he's been a great boon for us in terms of we know now, he knows what to expect from us and we know how to, to like to trust him. So, so you're really a septet now. <laughs> we, we actually only do... Maybe seven or eight concerts, uh, maybe ten or eleven concerts this year with him. Okay. So most of what we do is still acoustic. Right. Yeah, I mean the best way to think about our programs is we we have one usually each year we're trying this is what we're trying to do one staged production each year so one thing which is fully memorized with um, some sort of choreography or staging element um, one acoustic touring program we're doing a, we're touring a concerto at the moment so that's for six of us plus orchestra and then maybe an amplified show. Um, but, but those things all get... It's, so, it's been so complicated this year, the, the complexity of the rep. I mean, I feel like you do a little exasperated by how complex it gets to know what's happening week to week. I, I choose not to know. So <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Do you look ahead? How far do you look ahead? Uh, you mean personally? How, long, yeah. how far do I look ahead? Um, in, in the middle of a season. In the middle of the season, I will look ahead. I I, I have a, a funny relationship with my calendar, you know, because I, I sort of glance at it and and kind of have a a peripheral understanding of of what I'm supposed to be doing. And every once in a while, I really look at it and think, "Oh my god!" <laughs> it's it's hard sometimes to look at it in such detail because it can be scary. I will typically. Um, go through something every maybe four, three or four weeks where I'll look ahead six weeks and I'll try and like, I'll try and like get it, everything sorted in my mind, what I'm doing when and what I'm playing when. And then a week later, I've forgotten it and it, it seems like chaos. Actually, you know, in our, in our quartet, you know, Sibby is really, really um, calendar oriented. I mean, he has a, a really good organizational brain. And so you can kind of like just tap him on the shoulder every once in a while and say, uh, what's going on and he'll you know he'll say well and and it's really actually amazing because I, I don't know if you've experienced this but you can ask him what we played maybe four years ago in you know this random venue what and he'll tell you what the program was what happened in the rehearsal <laughs> you know where we were going the next day I mean it's it's really quite phenomenal so I think because he's like that I've let that part of myself go a little bit we uh in eighth blackbird we each have different roles uh in because we actually, unlike you guys, we travel together almost invariably. Um, and we have to plan our travel quite carefully. And uh, typically, Lisa Lisa is our total detail. Lisa is our Sibby. She remembers everyone's name. She remembers every detail of every concert that we've ever played. She'll remember someone who we saw once seven years ago, whereas all the rest of us will walk past them blindly, you know, and she'll go, oh, Fred, how lovely to see you and hug them. Lisa books out. Our... What was your name again, by the way? 
Do you have a bad memory for names? I, I'm really terrible. I, I remember faces, but but names, it's it's like street names. I don't remember street names. I don't even know the street I live on, really. I Yeah, I can only remember the street I grew up in. I can't remember any of the adjacent streets. It's terrible, but I can remember exactly what they looked like. But we, uh, Lisa books our flights. Michael books our rental cars. Matt books our hotel rooms. You know, it, it becomes this sort of machine. Actually, it took me two and a half years to get used to this after I joined the group. This sort of how all these little complex pieces fit in, and the puzzle somehow works. Sure. I actually wanted to talk with you a little bit about this because I think we've had a similar experience in that we've grown, we, we've entered uh, or, or joined ensembles that were already in existence. And that is a, a really crazy experience. I know that, that everybody in, in the quartet world that, that I've talked to that has joined an existing ensemble, an existing quartet, just kind of, <laughs> we checked in with each other after like a year or so and we're like, wow, had no idea that's what, what quartet life was like and and the kinds of things that you, you do and the way that you rehearse. And, and it's it's wonderful, but it's a completely different experience than you might have imagined. So tell me, and like you, earlier you were saying about how much repertoire, the gazillion, gajillion notes that you had to learn that first year. So 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 tell me about your first year, your, your initial thoughts, and then now like what, two and a half years later? I joined 8th Blackbird having never played in a professional chamber music group more than the occasional gig. Right. And I noticed you, you kind of have a little bit of a hint of an accent. So where, where are you from? <laughs> I'm from Australia. Australia. Born, in, born and bred in Bris Vegas, Brisneyland, which is Brisbane. And I was headed for an orchestral career so, and totally failed to get a Tungina job. Um, and this job came out of nowhere and when I won it, I don't remember thinking anything about the repertoire, like knowing, having any sense of what was happening until on my doorstep in Australia arrived this package that was like five inches thick, full of music. Wow, yeah, I like how you, you've adopted the, the English system. <laughs> yeah, you're off metric, right? Yeah, I am, unfortunately. God, I went, I went cold, I tried to go to cold turkey, but it was too hard. I still haven't switched to Fahrenheit. I still use Celsius, <laughs> but I use feet and inches. I can deal with that. Um, and some portion of it was memorized. So I basically spent the year living like a monk. We were lucky in that year, lucky and unlucky, in having a pretty lean touring schedule that year so, and not that many new pieces to learn. So I, was, um, I had more time to learn things. Look, the group treated me exactly like I'd been a member of the group for 15 years which was wonderful and horrible at the same time. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful because they gave me the confidence that they uh, assumed um, they had the confidence in me that I could just do the job and they left me to do the job and I did it. And that was great. The other thing though, is that um, I sort of had to fit a role um, I felt a little bit in my first year like I was being Molly, who was my predecessor. I was sort of Molly, but taller and male. And that everything that I did that wasn't her was not really uh, acceptable. And so there was, there was a process of, of like trying to push that a little bit, push against that. Um, but more than that, just the, like the touring life um, was... I was so excited about it to begin with. But when the reality of... Um, seeing only, 
because it wasn't it wasn't like I was going to San Francisco and like you know getting my tour guide and going to the Golden Gate Bridge and going to see Alcatraz. I mean, of of San Francisco, I saw the airport, the hotel room, and the venue. And if I was that's life in a as a touring ensemble. Yeah, and I was really I mean I'm really excited when I have like three hours in a place. So for instance, in, when we were in London and I had three hours, I went jogging and I jogged past Buckingham Palace. When we were in San Francisco last year, I had three hours immediately before a concert, and I just put on my jogging clothes and jogged to the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, no, no, yeah, we we kind of do the same thing. It's like speed tourism. <laughs> I like that speed tourism. It's sort of my mum always used to say when she was in Europe when she when she was younger that she used to come across these American tourists who would like go to a, a place and they would just like tick off, and they were like, "Oh, did France? Did Germany?" <laughs> <laughs> seen all there is to see, right? Right, and when I tell people I've been to 34 or 35 US states in the last five years, they, they typically look shocked, but then I say, well, I mean, some of those I only spent, I've only spent 36 hours in. Right. So do you, have, like, do you have a map at home where you, where you put a little pin on each? I had a Facebook thing. I'm, I have one of those little Facebook apps for a while where I was putting pins in states. It stopped being, though, that interesting. At a certain point... Um, Actually, I was talking to... I was talking to... Talk about name-dropping. I was talking to Glenn Kochi of Wilco fame, the drummer of Wilco, who we were working with last year. W- Wilco, is that like... Um, is, that a, is that like a polka, polka band? <laughs> it's popular music. Popular music. And um, I was saying, you know, you've been in the group... I'd been in the group then four years, and he'd been in Wilco six years, I think. And he... Or maybe it was longer. And I was saying, when did it, when did it start being a job? Because I'd started, my mum had caught me because I was like saying, oh, at work, oh, at my job. And mum was saying, oh, you're now referring to it as work. And she thought that of that as being a good thing. Because then you start to create a little distance between you and this thing, this all-consuming monster that can just take over your life. Yes, but, but Tim, we play for a living. We play. <laughs> well, what is, is it your life? I mean, do you have a separation between your life and the group? Uh, between my life and the group, no. yeah. I mean, I, I think. Well, I, I guess what because of what uh, well the way that we structure our lives, we have so many different activities. You know, so so we're teaching, we're playing concerts, we're rehearsing, we're touring. You know, um, so so the teaching already is kind of separated from quartet somehow because you're you're in your own studio teaching your own students. And then after after that, after you know you've had a long day of rehearsals and teaching, you go home, and you know with my wife we don't we don't really talk about music that much. <laughs> you know we'll we'll talk about you know the day, or just whatever, or friends. You know, hang out with friends, make dinner. You know, so it's it's a complete, you know, right. change of of thought. So. It's interesting you bring up education because when I first joined Eighth Blackbird. Uh, there was a definite sense that when we did educational activities, we all had to be involved. So all six of us would go to master classes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was it's super intense, and it doesn't really work that productively. And so we started paring it down. You know, it would be like four of us and then three of us. Now typically two of us will go to master classes. So really paring it down. That's a good pun. Uh, you like that? Yeah, I like that. Nice pun. <laughs> I don't know. It... Um, it feels a little like because even now that uh, we, even when we do educational work, 
where, where we are operating still as a group. So it is not, we don't even have that separation that you guys do because we don't teach that much in terms of private lessons. Our residencies are typically things that the whole group are involved with. So, Yeah. Well, well, the master class thing is kind of interesting because we often do master classes as a quartet, so it's all four of us, and a lot of people request that, uh, a lot of different institutions. So um, that, that's that's a very different experience because, well, it's, it's essentially like a really high octane rehearsal. <laughs> I mean, we're all, like everyone's just kind of like shouting things out and and yeah, you know, I mean, and like it's the same in Eighth Blackbird. I mean, I find it kind of um, it's very high intensity. Not always that productive, but it is definitely like really an intense experience. I think for the students as well. I think they feel like they've just been hit by like everything from all sides. I remember at Tanglewood in high school, the, the Muir Quartet came and gave a master class. And at one point, a couple of them started arguing. And I remember we were all just sitting there so shocked because it they was were yeah, yeah. That, they, that they were arguing because it was just, um, you know, it's like, wow. I mean, don't they, don't, you know, how do rehearsals work and like... Yeah, it's fascinating to talk to friends of mine in professional chamber music groups because in fact it's, um, that was, okay, so this is another surprise that I, you know, coming into the group. I just assumed that, that chamber music at a professional level would be just as much fun as chamber music as, as students. But there is a lot more uh, intensity and... Uh, built up sort of uh, relationships that that do sometimes clash and I was interested to find how intense it was and how uh, different from what that was from what I imagined and so actually I never had that experience of having a professional quartet teach me and then see like the the internal tensions there because there are it's like a relationship I mean you're in a relationship with these people you I spend more time with them than I spend with I mean, any family member or is anyone, you know, intimate relationship? Well, you know, the, there's like the old joke about string quartets that it's it's like a marriage with none of the benefits. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? That, it's a quartetto italiano, right? Wasn't the, the, the woman in there married to a couple of the guys at certain points? Yeah, that, that's, it, it, as, as I understand it, that she, she had um, been married to each one of the different members <laughs> or something like that, yeah. Well, you have a marriage in your in your. Uh, yeah, yeah, Samina's married to Brandon, and it's always been that way. <laughs> oh, you were, they've been married since since you joined the group? Yeah, since before I joined the group. So then what was the experience like for you uh, coming in? Was it s similar in, in any way, like, that they treated you like you'd been part of the group, or were they kind of trying to walk you through things slowly? Or I think it, it was... Um, it, it was kind of... Well, they, they had some second violin changes before... Um, before Sibby, and so I think they they had been through the experience of of a change before. I was I, I am the second violist of, of the quartet, so there there wasn't a whole lot of change in in that seat. So there was there was I was we were thrown into a situation of having to. You replaced an Aussie too, right? That's right, Catherine Lockwood. Um, she went to New York to be with her husband, uh, and I came from New York to join a string quartet. So. Um, there were just so many pieces to learn, and I think it was just such a kind of a survival mentality in that first year, uh, just trying to keep my head above water. For me, it, it, I think because string quartets are so much more of a codified form, um, what I was trying to do for, for my first few years, I think, in retrospect, as I look back, is um, really trying to fit in. And so in a lot of ways, I was kind of trying to make myself disappear, but in in a very 
you know, cohesive way so, so that I was always part of the ensemble. So I was, I was trying to get inside everybody else's head and learn how, how they played and kind of be able to anticipate what was happening in somebody's bow arm or, or kind of what a gesture would lead to uh, in terms of sound. So then I think three, three four years into it, 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 I started feeling more comfortable to, to play out and, and do my own thing within, with that base of, of cohesiveness. Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely um, played around a lot. My sound changed a lot in the first couple of years I was in the group. I played around with a lot of things. Uh, there was a feeling in the group that I was not a loud enough player when I joined. Um, you know, because in in a sextet like this, you you are competing against piano and percussion, and there is a sort of um, there's a sort of uh, a, I mean, a, a bigger sound required of a flute player. Actually, one thing that I always that I struggled with for the for the first four years and it's it's been a really positive thing in my playing that's changed is that i i have a much bigger dynamic range i i really try to play i i was demanded by the group to play very very soft and very very loud and that was a really interesting thing which i just i mean a flute player we usually we have a dynamic range between mezzo piano and mezzo forte usually you know between a little bit softer and a little bit louder that's kind of what we do so so we was that because you were trying to match all the different like sound worlds of, of the like the strings versus the percussion or, or is that just like just kind of an eighth blackbird thing it's it's definitely an eighth blackbird thing there's always a, there's also a strong sense that um i was matching trying to match with the strings and with the wind with uh, the other wind player who's a clarinetist so i was using less vibrato because clarinet uses no vibrato so I, actually a lot of the time I was, when I first joined the group, I was using no vibrato at all. But then at the same time, the strings were always trying to warm things up. And Matt Albert's um, mantra always was play it like Brahms. You know, oh, this should sound more like Debussy. This should sound more like Brahms. This should sound more like Schumann. You know, there, there's, there's definite sense that there was a lot of warmth coming from there. And so I, I, was, I was actually struggling to find that, while at the same time always being told I was behind the beat. By, um, because as a as a piano and percussion led group, there's a, there's a sense that we play right on the front of the beat, and that that took me a while to get used to as well. You know, and percussion led like do you mean ensemble? I just mean because you have a group that has piano and percussion in it. When they hit, yeah. that is where it hits. Right. Whereas with a group like a, a wind quintet or a string quartet or some sort of um, group without um, any sort of uh, an instrument where the attack is so precise. There isn't quite that demand, but actually that, that was another thing that, that it took me a while to get used to. And I was always the person who was behind the beat. Right, because I think actually probably flute has the slowest or, or least immediate or sharp articulation. With that, unless you really like, like uh, what do you call that? What do you call that when you like, like, like really get like a thumpy kind of articulation? Do you have a word for that or is that just, uh, never mind, I'm just, I don't know. So what, what is a flute? <laughs> Flute is a really dumb instrument that has only bad chamber music. One of the interesting things actually about joining this group is this is probably the best chamber music I'll ever play. The be really the best pieces that we play uh, will be some of the best chamber music I will ever play. Because actually flute players have a very poor chamber music repertoire. We have just a handful of pieces in mixed groups and then there are like wind quintets, which is not a favourite combination of mine. And then some things with, with um, string trio which, I mean, apart from the Mozarts, there's not a lot of actual repertoire for. So 
It's, for me, this is actually, this is as close to a sort of string quartet in terms of the quality of music as I'm ever going to get. I'm so jealous of string quartets. I look at you guys and it's just, it's kind of crazy. Do you wake up every morning and you play the greatest music ever written? I mean, how does that feel? Do you, yeah, do you have a feeling about that? It's, you don't even think about that. Well, I, I think it's, it's one of those things that you take for granted and then you're playing it and you kind of realize as you're playing it every once in a while, like, Wow. I mean, I mean, it's it's not like one of those things that you're. I mean, there's constant reverence, but you're not, you're not constantly thinking, "Oh my God, this is the best thing ever." But then, every once in a while, you just kind of step back and say, "Oh my God, you know, this really." Like last night, we played Opus 132, uh, Beethoven's um, late quartet with the the, the Heilige Dankesang movement, and you know, and it's just every time, every time, it's just like. It just it you know draws this huge well of emotion you know and you're just kind of like I didn't even expect that you know. But when you're playing a piece like that, you must be conscious of technical issues throughout. Yeah, I mean this is this is we're professional performers, right? So so when you walk out on stage, you have to control the experience and you you have to be thinking about awareness of of what your right pinky is doing, what what the you know even. The, the way the light's hitting the music that you can make sure that you can read the the whole page that what other people are doing you know kind of what your instrument's doing um what your tempo is what your tempo was in the previous movement and it's it, you know what what um where that c sharp was that someone played you know a bar earlier that you have to match you know up a fifth or something you know so it, there's so much managing that you have to do that it's that's why i think it's you you're not constantly in this in the state of mind of, oh my gosh, this is just so wonderful. Yeah, no, that's the uh, the Amadeus sort of, uh, or what's the Beethoven movie, Immortal Beloved sort of way. Oh, and Jackie, the the, the movie about Jekyll and Dupre. I mean, the way that Hollywood makes music out to be that sort of thing. But actually, I mean, that looks that sounds incredibly like the way that I think about um, things when I'm performing. Uh, um, a performer who will entirely remain nameless. Um, you're talking about me. I don't even know if this is ever going to be appropriate, but you'll just cut it out if it isn't, right? So uh, this performer who shall remain remain nameless. Um, we were playing in a in a, a piece with her, and we came. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't narrow the field that much, does it? Um, there was this rapturous reception. I mean, it was it was the most amazingly intense and beautiful and finely honed, but but like really incredibly moving performance. And we went off afterwards, and the first thing she, she said was, "I feel like I just masturbated in front of fifteen hundred people." <laughs> and I always think, I, ever since then, I've been thinking, you know, it's interesting. There's so much that needs to be um, thought about and that, that needs to be considered technically, that if you ever, if I ever, like, let go during a performance, it will only be worse. Like, if I fully let myself go. I don't know, do you feel, do you feel the same way? Do you get taken away and feel like, and then listen back and think that was amazing, or? Um, I, I think, I mean, this is, this is the, the big difference between playing for yourself and playing for others, is that I, I think, you know, if I really, really just, you know, cut loose and just, you know, and I'm just enjoying it like crazy, um, it probably means that I'm not managing things very well. I'm not managing um, the the projected experience. I, I don't know. It, it's it's a complicated. 
it it does. I it does sound. I totally agree with you. My brother always used to argue with me. He's an indie rock singer songwriter, and I'm such a classical music geek that when we were, when we lived together as like high school kids, we fought like cat and dog. And one of the things we always fought about is he always said, you know, Tim, you're so you're so intellectual. It's all it's all in your brain. And implying that everything that he did was, you know, came straight from the heart. And there is a frustration I have now much more about classical music, which is there is so much, like, intellectual activity that has to go into, for me, that needs to go into a satisfying performance. It's a little sad for me sometimes to be on stage and to I sometimes think to myself, why am I not getting more lost in this? Why can't I let myself go? Um, but, but do you think that that's diminishing the experience for your audience? No. I don't think for a second it's diminishing the experience for the audience. Do you think it's increasing the, the, the or, or adding to the experience of the audience? Or, or what do you, I, I, mean, I mean, that's a leading question, but... Uh, <laughs> I am only interested in giving audiences intense emotional experiences. That's what I've come to really understand my role is as a musician I want people to have intense emotional experiences and so what I do is maybe very consciously and intellectually worked out but it is entirely geared towards giving an audience that experience so I don't I feel like it is enhancing their experience thinking through these things well we have a, a concert to go play now so I think that it's time to wrap it up. So thank you very much. And uh, any parting words? No. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. Goodbye. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any comments, I would love to hear them. So drop me an email at innervoicepodcast at yahoo.com. That's all one word, innervoicepodcast at yahoo.com. Goodbye.